You know, oh, good morning, by the way. How is everybody this morning? You know, I am amazed. I'm perpetually amazed. I think Matt and I have been working together for about, golly, I don't know, Matt, how long have we been working together? 12 years? 12 years we've been working together-ish? Pretty close to that. You know, the amazing thing about what I find in terms of the Holy Spirit moving is how often, um, and it never fails, how often the music that Matt leads us in speaks right into the message in regard to what it is the Lord has placed on my heart. And the ironic thing is I've changed my sermon three times this week, just wrestling through what it is I think we needed to hear today and what it is I needed to hear today. Because I need to hear it as much or more than you guys need to hear it. Right? So there's a lyric in one of the songs, is anyone worthy, is anyone whole? And I think sometimes we can dupe ourselves into thinking we are either worthy or whole. Remember, our value, our worth is actually declared by God himself. It's nothing that we can take upon ourselves. He said, I so love the world that I gave my one and only son that whoever would believe. And in that, he purchased us. And so at that moment, he declares our value. He declares our worth. But the song that we sang had everything to do with who was worthy, in essence, to judge. Who was worthy to make a decision. And John is standing in, Revel, in, in heaven and in, in the book of Revelation is where that's quoted from. And he's standing there and he's weeping, waiting for the moment that the one who was worthy would be revealed, realizing that if no one was worthy, sin would not be conquered, not in its consummation. And so that declaration of who is worthy, who is whole, well, it's none of us, and it's only him. And it's leaning into him, receiving from him what he has for us, receiving the Holy Spirit that indwells in us, being humble before him and recognizing that it's only by his grace that we stand. It's only by his mercy that we're not snuffed out. All the way back in Isaiah, he declares, he says, a smoldering wick I will not snuff out and a bruised reed I will not break. I want us to think about how gentle a set of hands that is. How easily a wick, just a lick of a finger and a pinch, and it's gone. And if you've ever walked through a field and the, as the reeds become brittle and you see one that is bruised, how quickly and easily it can be snapped off. Yeah, God says, I will not do that to any of you, not one of you, because we're all broken and we're all smoldering. And the most dangerous thing we can do is ever think that we're worthy. It's only his, by his declaration. It's to think that I'm whole, when in fact it's he who makes me whole. And to receive that wholeness from him. That's kind of what we're talking about today. So, if you grab the notes with me, if you would. You know, what we've been talking about is the gift of one another. And today I wanna to talk a little bit about making sure we're not taking each other for granted because it can happen. And it's one of the saddest parts of a walk with the body of Christ. 
when all of a sudden we take each other for granted or we take one for granted. So if you would look at the first line with me here, it says, the mercy of the one who has received mercy, the mercy of the one who has received mercy. You know, Romans 12 says we're to be in view of God's mercy, this mercy that we have received, this mercy that does not snuff me out, does not break me off, but in fact breathes life into me, lets me live in spite of myself. Treating others as we have been treated, loving others as we have been loved, extending mercy to others as it has been extended to us, and granting the gift of grace to others as it has been granted to us. And that gift of grace is forgiveness. The gift that truly keeps on giving if we're willing to give it. Mm, we're going to sit there for a minute. I know I have to, and I've had to. Giving forgiveness when we've been forgiven so much. So what I want to talk about a little bit today is how we sin against each other and what that looks like. Once having received mercy, are we willing to give mercy? Once having received forgiveness, are we willing to forgive? And this is an important element in regard to where we have been and where we're going. But there's something I want to make sure we understand first. That not every hurt that a believer puts on another believer is sin. Not every hurt we receive from another believer is sin. So I have a friend of mine who punishes me every week. He's my, one of my all-time best friends. He's been my prayer partner for 25-plus years. He regularly calls me to just remind me of how much I need Jesus and sometimes reminding me how often I fall short. And a couple weeks ago, he sent me this devotional that I did not like very much. In fact, I avoided it for about a week before I finally opened it and let it touch me. Look at what it says now. Or you don't have it, so listen closely. And he said, he said, um, he says, God can never make us wine. Listen, if we're grapes, right? God can never make us wine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us. Mm. <laughs> That's a pretty profound statement. And what do we mean by that? That not every hurt that we experience in the context of fellowship or family or church is sinful or an act of sin. In fact, sometimes it's a kind act. It's a gracious act. It's a merciful act. It's a loving act. It's a spirit-led act. Or it was just unintended by them and it ends up hitting us in a place we never imagined being hit because we didn't know there was a problem. We didn't know there was something in me. We didn't know there might be something. I didn't know. I didn't know. And so I read this line and I, to be honest with you, said, because uh. no one wants to hear this. No one wants to be reminded of it. Look what, and listen to what it says again. It says, God, God can never make us wine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us with. If God would only use his own fingers and make me broken bread and pour out wine in a special way, if God would just descend and do it, if he would just speak voluminous to me and I would know for sure that it's God's but No, God chooses to use the fingers of those around us. To do what? To squish us. But when he uses someone whom we dislike or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit and he makes those crushers, we object. 
Are you kidding me? And in fact, we'll almost always point fingers back. We'll almost always defend. We'll almost always try to justify. We'll almost always stop. We'll blame. And he's saying, no. This is what it is to be part of the family of God. This is what it is to be part of the body. This is what it is to truly love one another. This is what it is to actually receive from one another kindness, which is not always nice. And love that does not always feel good or, or produce sentimentality. We don't like it when he uses someone whom we dislike or a set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit and makes those the crushers we object. We object to that. We must never choose the scene of our own martyrdom. Let me let, me let that sink in for a moment. We can't choose the scene of our martyrdom, of our death, of our being crucified. It's not our choice. It's not our choice where that will be. It's not our choice as to what the cross might look like. It, it's not my, our choice as to what will hold us to that cross and pierce us through. And it certainly is not our choice as to who it is who wields the hammer or thrusts the spear. It's not our choice. That's God. That's his working. And so we have to be really careful not to point fingers at fellow believers when in our hearts or in our minds or in our imaginations and our feelings, we feel like they've betrayed us or they've spoke ill of us or they are being unkind to us when in fact it may not be sin. We'll get to the sin aspect here in a second. But what I want to do is set the table here to help us realize that it's not always sin that hurts. It's not. Sometimes God is using an object of his own affection to squish, to squeeze, to make juice out of another object of his affection. And a lot of times those two things happen at the same time where you're squishing each other. And we have to work through that. We have to be careful with that. We must never choose the scene of our own martyrdom. If we are going to be made into wine, we will have to be crushed. You can't drink a grape. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. I wonder what kind of finger and thumb God has been using to squeeze you. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you sending this to me. <laughs> okay, I'm going to repeat the sentence. You ready? I wonder what kind of finger and thumb God has been using to squeeze you, and you have been like a marble and have escaped. Boing. You are not ripe yet, and if God has squeezed you, the wine would have become remarkably bitter. Keep right with God and let him do what he likes, and you will find that he is producing the kind of bread and wine that will benefit his other children. It's not just for you. It's not just for you. So I want to go there because we're going to talk about, we've been talking about sin. We've been talking about the need to have each other in our lives is to speak to us in regard to our sin. And I thought I'd give you a great example of when it's not sin, but when you have a brother who's willing to talk to you about your sin because you've been a marble instead of a grape and you've objected to the finger and thumb that he's using to press you and you object, and you would like to choose your place of martyrdom, and who gets to swing 
the hammer. And if God, if it were just you, if I would see your face and hear your voice, it would be okay. But that you would use this person or that or this situation or that situation or this circumstance or another, I object. I object. At one point, do we humbly say, God, okay, this is on me, my bad. Help me to relent and to bow. And to stop accusing the one I'm accusing or being paranoid of the one I'm paranoid of or tune out the voice that is speaking untruths that I thought were true. Anyone ever been there? Yeah. So, turn to, now what I had Jeff do this morning was lead us in the Lord's Prayer, which we have not done in a long time and I thought was not only good but necessary. But there's also a line in there that I want to use as a, as a jumping point. So you're going to need your Bible today because I did not put any of the text in the notes. So you need to turn to Luke chapter 11, if you would. Luke chapter 11. <laughs> Here we go. Let me pray. Father, we come before you. And the first thing I want to do is say, Lord, forgive me when I assume I know, and when I therefore read as if I know, and my heart is not prepared to hear from you. So Lord, prepare our hearts to hear, especially this familiar text, that it would penetrate, and that we would be moved and transformed. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So very quickly, we won't, we won't linger here, because this is, again, we've we've uh, recited it. So I'm going to start at verse 1. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, okay, so when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Just give us this day, each day, our daily bread. May we see you as our provider in the hand that gives. And forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. And then lead us not into temptation. Now, the lead us not into temptation isn't that God leads us into temptation. It's the prayer that God would lead us away from temptation. We will go into temptation. The question is, will God, will we respond to God's guiding us through it or around it or past it? But the key I want to linger here on is this. Forgive others. Forgive me as I forgive others. You know, in regard to salvation, our sins are forgiven. We stand before God justified, meaning declared righteous and good as if I had never sinned before, expunged. My previous life is literally expunged from me. But in regard to my continued relationship with God and its effectiveness, and then my relationship with others and its effectiveness, it's essential that I examine my heart, that I'm willing to forgive. And then realize that the... In essence, the curse of the sin remains on me when I refuse to forgive. In other words, God can't bless me if I have an unforgiving heart, if I'm not reflecting the mercy that God has bestowed upon me, if I'm not practicing the mercy that God has bestowed on me, then he, he has to hold back whatever blessing that I would have in regard to the, my recognizing having been forgiven, having the weight of my, the consequences of my sin begin to at least um, be mitigated by the strength he gives me to walk in it, and I will continue to suffer from anxieties or 
from paranoias or from difficulties or hard-heartedness, and therefore I become ineffective. And so what Jesus is doing is giving us a prescriptive prayer. The description of humanity is it's extremely difficult for us to forgive. This pre, and, and, and to actually receive forgiveness from God. Anyone here ever ask God forgiveness about something and then really struggle believing you're forgiven? Anybody? It's hard, isn't it? And our tendency is to struggle in that regard. And so Jesus is giving us a prescription. He's saying, first and foremost, I will forgive you. I have forgiven you eternally, and I will forgive you temporally in the midst of the sinning that you will commit. But the realization of your forgiveness comes when you are willing to forgive others. It is not that you're not forgiven. It is that that you will not realize the forgiveness, and you cannot realize the forgiveness because you will not receive the blessing of the, of the realization of that forgiveness unless you forgive someone else their sin against you. So, which is why I wanted to start, first and foremost, that any, some pain that we inflict upon one another is not a matter of sin, but there is pain that is a matter of sin, and we need to, we need to recognize that. So, now go to Matthew, if you would, chapter 18. Go to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at this idea of forgiving. the stubbornness with which we can live if we're not careful. So I'd like you to be in the text with me, so if you don't have a Bible, grab one from the pew back in front of you, or you can put it on your widget, whatever it is you have, but we're going to be in Matthew 18. We're going to start at verse 21. What time do we have? So Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive? Now, the interesting thing is, is this is coming off a little dissertation that the two of them, that Jesus had just had. Look at verse 15. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, if he's stubborn or justifying or defensive, take one or two others along so that the matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, have little to do with him. See, if you, I th he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind here on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And he goes, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, ask for it, and it will be done for you my Father in heaven, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am also. I'm the mediator, I'm the peacemaker, and I'm here to bring truth, and to bring truth between the two of you. And as you work through the issue, I will rise up, and I'll offer you the truth. Peter then says to him, he came to him and said, okay, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? How many times, up to seven? And so Peter is trying to show, first of all, Jesus his piety. Seven times? which is a significant number in ancient languages, especially Hebrews, and means complete, it means finished, it means almost perfect, right? So Peter is saying to Jesus, listen, seven times should I? 
But look what Jesus' response to this is. It's almost like Jesus knows we're stubborn, or we struggle, or we're defensive, or we refuse to admit, or we refuse to acknowledge, or refuse to receive. Anybody have any of those attributes? All right, yeah, yeah. This is the moment when James says, listen, don't just be a reader, hearer of the word and not a doer. Don't be like the person who looks at the word of God like a man looks in the mirror and sees himself in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. This is the tough one, because this is a mirror, and it's reflecting us back to our, he's and Jesus knows our heart, he knows our nature, he knows our flesh, he knows our propensities. He knows how quickly we want to, he knows how mad, it was, how mad I was at Dean when he sent me that devotional. <laughs> And I've refused to answer his calls for two weeks. (laughs) He's watching. Hi, Dean. He's a jerk. (laughs) A good one, but a jerk nonetheless. Because he's always right, and I don't like it. Okay, so here we go. So Peter is trying to show Jesus his piety. And he's come off this little dissertation that Jesus has made, and now he's kind of chewing on it a little bit, and he's saying, okay, how many times? What do I? Jesus answered, I tell you, seven times. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, infinite, without measure. Now look what he says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. This is an astronomical amount of money. We can't begin to fathom the debt that this man carried. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. I want us to think about that for a minute. I want us to think about knowing that I have this enormous debt and that the master has just announced that he's going to now come and settle the debt. It'd be kind of like we just bought a house for whatever it is we can't afford, because that's how most of us do it. And about a year in, after making a year or two's worth of payments, the bank comes and says, okay, I need, all, I need the rest of the loan. And if I don't get the rest of the loan, I'm confiscating the house and everything in it, and if your children happen to be there, they come with it too. This is what's happening. And so what he's doing is he's calling his note. Come here. And this man is standing in essence before him naked, full of debt, recognizing the degree of debt that he has and knowing that there's no possible way for him to pay the debt. And the master pulls a note on him. He says, not only now do I want your home and all the income that you have, anything, any assets, and if you've got something that's still worth something in the stock market, that's mine too. Oh, and by the way, if your wife and children are still in the house, they're mine, and we'll sell them. See, this is a very real practice in the day, and there isn't anybody who was listening that didn't get it, whose heart didn't just start beating really hard, and whose stomach didn't start to tighten up, and who probably knew somebody who had gone through something like this. Now, I want to stop here a minute because I want to be theological, 
The fact is what Jesus is trying to say to Peter and to the disciples and now to us is listen, the degree of debt you have before your master is beyond your imagination. You can't begin to fathom the debt. And there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. So I'll go back to the song we sang, is anyone worthy and is anyone whole? No, not a one. And the debt that we carry breaks our back. Look what it goes on to say. Says, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Could you imagine standing in line knowing what you owe and that it's coming? <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, oh man, it's like sitting in the principal's office. <laughs> I hear a couple guys going, "Mm-hmm, yeah, I remember that." My stomach just tightened up. Thank you very much. Verse 25 goes on to say, oh, so verse 24, he says, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and since he could not, he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had sold to repay the debt. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took what? Took pity on him, and did what then? Gave him time? Extended his note? Lowered the interest? No? Mm -mm. Canceled it. Canceled. Expunged. Gone. We need to stop here again. So there, I lost a nose piece on my glasses somewhere. It is? All right, I'll get it after the service, but thank you. Oh, and there goes my glasses now. <laughs> All right, so I'll find it later. Okay, here we go, because I'll get lost. Okay, so why do I want to stop here for a moment? On the back of the sheet are some really poorly written questions. I didn't realize that until I saw that my, I rely on an editor thing on my computer, and I had turned it off by mistake, so bear with the typos and the like that come with it. But the questions are still there. And one of the, you know, and the, 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 the crux of the questions is this. Do we have any clue the debt that was canceled for us, paid for by the life of Christ, and canceled on our behalf? Do we have any clue that when Paul says be in view of God's mercy, he meant it? <laughs> He meant it. He meant it. So I see, sometimes I forget. Sometimes when we've been walking with Jesus a long time, we can take for granted his mercy and the grace. We can take, it, take for granted the changed life. We can take for granted his word. We can take for granted brothers and sisters. We can take that for granted. We can then look at others and begin to judge them or to begin to even condemn them or not even think well of them because we have forgotten what we are forgiven. See, Jesus, what Jesus was doing here is saying, Peter, do you have any idea the depth of your sin? 
Do you have any idea what it will cost to pay for it? And if you can begin to grasp that, you'll begin to understand not only that you've been forgiven, but that now you must forgive. So he goes on. Verse 26 again, it says, the, sermon, the, the servant fell on his knees before him and he said, be patient with me, begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. All right, everybody breathe. <laughs> There's that sigh of relief. Your house has been saved. The contents of your house has been saved. Your wife is still yours and your children remain. All the red ink on your ledger is now gone. See the neat thing about red on red, if you see it, is that the red underneath just disappears. So the blood of Christ covered the red debt that you carried. It's no longer there. And we need to float there for a second. We need to sit there for a second because we need to remember. I know I do. I know I do. You know, every once in a while I pray that God would remind me of how deadly sin is. Because every once in a while I catch myself not remembering. Anybody else? And almost every time God reveals to me the brokenness of the lives around me, then eventually we'll get to my own black heart and say, Anthony, here you go. This is how ugly sin is. I have to dive into mercy. But not just receiving mercy, I have to be willing then to grant it. Not only receiving forgiveness and be reminding of it, but now I have to give it. How about you guys? It's not always easy for me. I can be a bit of a stinker. So, here's the other end of the spectrum. Now, that servant, he went out. Can you imagine how light he must feel at this point, and giddy and happy and relieved. That service went out and, and he did what? He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, just whatever's in your wallet. And he was so pleased that he'd been forgiven. What did he do? He forgave. He said, you know what, that hundred bucks you owe me, you keep it, you keep it. I'm just thrilled to have been able to give to you, and this is what the master just did for me. You can have that. Or not. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. Notice the exclamation point. He demanded, verse 29. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. It's the exact same phrase. The exact same phrase. Verse 30. 
but the first servant refused. First servant refused. Stubborn, belligerent, not recognizing the debt that had been paid, not realizing the depth, the amount, the mercy involved, the grace given, the life restored, the peace, the joy of being able to run back into his own house and hold his own wife and play with his own children who had not been sold but deserved to be. The children and the wife didn't, but the man. Look what he goes on to say now. His fellow servant fell to his knees and began to beg. He said, be patient with me and I will pay you back, but he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. I want to focus on verse 31 just for a moment because we need to recognize something. It says, when the other servants did what? When they what? When they saw. You know what we need to realize? Our sin, even if it's just between two of us, is never in a vacuum. And others will see and be affected. So there's this injured relationship vertically between us and our Heavenly Father, and then there's this injured relationship between us and the one with whom we're sharing sin. And then there's the periphery, the collateral, the collateral damage, the things that are seen when we don't realize they're seen or heard when we didn't realize they were heard or felt, even though it can't be seen or heard. You sense, you ever sense tension between two people? You're, you don't have anything to do with it. You just know, though, there's something between somebody in this room, and it's really beginning to unsettle everything. Anybody ever feel that way? Anyone ever been the source of that? I know I have. I know I am, and I know I do. So one of the things we need to recognize here is the responsibility of sin. That one, it's one thing to have sinned between me and God. It's another thing for me to sin with another. It's another thing for me to recognize that others see it. Which takes us back to something Jesus said about us that we have to understand. He said, you are the light in the world. Listen, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. There's nowhere we go where we're not seen. Neither did I light you to put you under a bowl or under a bed, but in fact, I lit you to put you on a lampstand. And you will be seen. And there's no not seeing you. So when Jesus here says, and the other servants saw and sensed and felt and heard, we need to recognize that truth. See, it's... And there's an instruction in Ephesians 4.29. This is something really important. Put your finger here. We're going to finish. We've got communion, so I want to make sure we're timely here. But keep your finger here and go to Ephesians 4.29 for a minute. And it's, uh, listen, I use this verse constantly because it's the most concise little instruction as to helping us understand our effect. <clears throat> ready? 
We good? I hear papers going still. All right, here we go. It says, do not let an unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The word unwholesome here does not mean profanity. I always have to emphasize that because we love to look at profanity as if that's the only bad language there is. The moment we allow this to just be profanity, we have justified every other kind of speech that we use. Unwholesome talk is anything that's putrid or rancid, anything that is not nutritional or good. It's like feeding somebody the rotten strawberry you found in the back of your refrigerator. That's what he's talking about. So look what it says. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful, nutritious, for building others up. We go, okay, that's between me and them. That's good, that's good. Then we need to learn to do that according to the need of the one in front of us, which demands, demands time with one another, learning one another, learning to love one another, learning about the other, because it's got to be according to their needs. In other words, we extend ourselves and we engage. Look what it goes on to say now. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who, that it may what? Benefit what? Those who what? Those who hear or listen. In other words, what you say reverberates. It's like dropping a pebble in a pond and those ripples go out. And even if they weren't there to hear it themselves, they probably heard it from the one to whom you were speaking or the one who's related to the one you were speaking or it goes out. It's why the psalmist said, man, you know, when I'm upset, when I'm churning, when I got sin going on, when I'm struggling, you know what I do? I put a muzzle on my mouth. I keep my mouth shut. And then finally, when it's burning so badly on, inside of me, I unleash. But I don't unleash on anyone else. I don't unleash on the person I'm angry with. I don't unleash about them to someone else. I unleash to you, oh God. And I confess my sin to you. Recompense can come later, but that first act is to keep your mouth shut if you're upset with somebody. People hear it. People see it. People smell it. People feel it. People sense it. Eat it. Then go to God then fix it. Am I making sense this morning? All right, so let's finish this text. Band, go ahead and get in place if you would. So he goes on, he says, verse 30, he says, he refused and he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. Notice the response, notice the effect, notice what happened to the body. It was distressed. Anyone like distress? No, me neither. I don't like being distressed. I don't like making distress. And I do both. And I have to recognize what Jesus is saying here. I have to see its effect. I have to take responsibility. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant, and you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. I was merciful to you, and then I was gracious to you, and I restored your life to you. I forgave you. Shouldn't you then have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. In verse 35, 
And this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Father, forgive me as I forgive others. The privilege we have standing before God in Christ is that our debt has been canceled. That's privilege number one. The privilege and responsibility then we have after that is to model that forgiveness to others and to live in peace. We need to realize that not every hurt between brothers and sisters is a sin. That's why I did that first part. But we need to be able to discern the difference, even if we didn't intend it, that we would both forgive and ask to be forgiven. This is the privilege we have as being children of God, having brought into, been brought into a relationship by mercy and grace into forgiveness, given a body of believers with whom to walk, who hold us accountable, who love us, and who we love, and then the privilege of extending forgiveness and relieving debt and distress. And to do so in a way that if it's seen or heard, affects the body. Because as much as they would have seen that he would not forgive, listen to me, they had already seen that the master did forgive. And so I can guarantee you that if we do forgive, that's seen too. And it creates peace and harmony and tranquility in the body. As much as we can bring distress, we have the power to bring peace. <clears throat> Which is why Jesus said, blessed is the peacemaker. Blessed is the peacemaker. Listen, they will be called sons and daughters of God. Communion, ironically, is that place. It's the table of fellowship where Jesus sat with his disciples, disciples who would betray him, <laughs> who would deny him, who would sin against him, and yet he forgave. And the commandment that he gave coming off of this moment was, you are to love one another, and you will love one another the way I have loved you. This is the table at which we sit today. This is the call that Jesus puts on our lives, granting us the privilege and the blessing of having been forgiven to have our past expunged and then granting that same gift to the person with us. 77 times. So, as we prepare for communion, we're gonna sing a song. I would pray that we allow the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and to reflect and to re show us those areas. And then when you're ready, come and take the elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together. Let's stand and sing. <clears throat>